Some of you know that I used to be a homeless preacher, which is not to say that I lived on the street with a sign that said, I'll preach for food or tell you a Craddock story for a cracker, but it's to say that I was for many years a professor at a seminary and that was my full-time gig, but I preached most every Sunday, sometimes for a year when they were in between ministers, but also many, many times, just a Sunday here and a Sunday there, all kinds of experiences, all kinds of churches. About 20 years ago, something like that, many of those churches were in the midst of the worship wars. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but the worship wars were, I, I would say, primarily about two things. One, the style of music that the church was deciding to sing, and two, whether they would spring to buy a projector and a screen. And it was, whew, knock down, drag out. Christianity's only been having screens for 20 years out of its 2,000, and I don't know that we've figured out what to do with them. In visiting all those churches, some of them would put announcements up, some of them clip art and sentimental this, and, and you know, just a variety of things, lyrics, whatever, sometimes a movie clip. Christianity hadn't figured out what to do with a projector. In the midst of that, I was at a conference on worship, and a gentleman who lived in Boston and was the head of an organization called Christians in the Visual Arts said, you know, where I worship, we do not have a screen, and I don't know that we ever will, but if we did, I know how I would use it. I would put up a Rembrandt. I would portray a Rembrandt one week and maybe a Van Gogh the next. And I thought, hmm, now that's better than clip art. And I filed it away. Now, at Country Club, we don't have a projector and a screen. But if we did, this morning, the piece that would be before you, as big as we could get it, would be Sebastiano Ricci's The Marriage Feast at Cana. Turns out the Nelson has it down the street. When the director was here and spoke at Thanksgiving, I did mention to him casually that if the Nelson ever wishes to gift that to someone, <laughs> I would take it. He hasn't gotten back to me. Apparently, it works the other way around. People give them art. I, I don't know. If you go on the field trip to see it, take your time. Sit before it. Look it over. One of the things that will strike you, besides its size and, and grandeur, one of the things that will strike you, though, is that it's really not set in first century Israel. It's the story of this water into wine, but it's really, the painting is set in 16th century Italian Renaissance. The clothing, the architecture, it gives it away. That's a common thing that artists have done throughout the years, and it's not because they're not aware of first century customs. It's their way to take an ancient story and to retell it for their day. Theologians and preachers have been doing that as well, and rightly so. We take an ancient story and we try to figure out what does it mean for today? How do we make sense of it? I mean, we could just sort of sit around and say, oh, remember that time when Jesus turned water into wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what do you do with it? How do you make sense of it? 
For that to happen, two things have to occur. One, you have to hear the story and get all of its details. And two, then you have to interpret it to somehow make sense of it. On the surface, the story itself is pretty short and sweet. Jesus goes to a wedding, his mother's there, they run out of wine, there's a little conversation. She says, do whatever, he turns it into wine. And that's about it, which is not much to go on, but there are some details you have to note. Some of you know that uh, occasionally I do Bible and art tours with a docent at the Nelson. And when we do, this piece, for instance, is always on the list, Sebastiano Ricci's piece. But she'll, she'll kind of divide the canvas into one-foot sections, and you start at the top, and you look across, and then you come down, and you look across, and, and it makes you look at details that you, you wouldn't have seen. There, there are details, like, for instance, Jesus isn't in the middle, the, but the lines and the lighting point you to him. Or even though it's at a wedding, it kind of has this Last Supper feel when you look at it. The details in this story are worth noting. Like, like, for instance, in the first century, villages would put life on hold to celebrate a wedding. Now, when I say villages, I mean the whole village, but we're talking maybe 100 people or so. And when I say they would put life on hold, weddings lasted seven days. You would come together every day to continue the feast, which probably explains why they ran out of wine. And the problem there isn't just that people attending weddings like wine. It's that it would shame the host. He would lose face. And so Jesus has that conversation with Mary, and it seems on the surface to be a little bit abrupt and rude, but it's not. And then she says those profound words, do whatever he tells you. She knows that he knows what to do. So he has them fill those big jars of water, except when they taste it. It's become this amazing wine. That's what happens. But what do we make of it? Unfortunately, in the history of Christianity, so many people have been distracted by the alcohol. Some people just wish that somehow Jesus had turned water into grape juice. But it's wine. And others, maybe, maybe you, I don't know, thought, hmm, I wonder how you do that. How could you get Pinot Noir out of your tap? That would be amazing. Or Chardonnay out of the sink there. But really, that's missing the point. John, the writer, gives us hints on how to interpret it. In the last verse, this is what he says. He finishes telling the story, and then he says, Now, Jesus did this, the first of his signs. That's the clue uses the word sign. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels, they tell about Jesus doing miracles. But when John has Jesus do a miracle, he always calls it a sign. And there are seven of them in the Gospel of John. Nowadays, people sort of use that term loosely, a sign from God. My wife and I returned yesterday from a few days in Cancun. And I was remembering how a couple of years ago when we were in Cancun, we were laying on the beach in the most important discussion of the day, late afternoon. So where do you think we ought to eat tonight? You know, it's vacation, right? And at the very moment I asked it, a plane flew overhead carrying one of those big signs behind it. And I said, Carol, look, it's a sign from God. This is where we're supposed to eat. 
And it got closer, and I read it, and it was a disco. <laughs> Not a sign from God. People have offered all kinds of suggestions for signs from God. When the Twin Towers fell, some people said, it's a sign from God, we're being judged. Thousands perish. Or, or when Katrina slammed into the Gulf Coast, God is judging New Orleans. This is God's judgment. Fred Phelps used to famously protest at funerals of veterans and say this was God's judgment upon our nation for our tolerance of gays. It's a sign from God. But this is how you know something is not a sign from God if it leads to death. The signs in John's gospel are about life. It's wine out of water. And after that, the sick are healed. That's a sign. The blind can see. The hungry are fed. Phelps used to say that death was a sign. Funerals. But no, the last of the seven signs in the Gospel of John is when Jesus goes to a funeral and raises Lazarus from the dead. It's not death that's a sign. It's life. Life is gift of God. One of my favorite stories out of the Holocaust is a lesser known one. It's not like Schindler's List, although it's similar. Oscar Schindler's well known, how he rescued these Jews from extinction and got a thousand or more out. But this one's about a woman whose name was Irina Sendler. She was Polish and she was a social worker. And when they rounded up the Jews in camps in Poland, she was allowed as a social worker to go in and out and, and to care for people. And she realized before too long what was going to happen. And she thought, what, what, what can I do? And she came up with a solution. She knew that there were moms with babies in the camps. And she said to the moms, you and your child are going to die. But your child doesn't have to. And she convinced the moms to let her sneak out one baby at a time, in baskets, under her skirt, whatever it took. And she made a deal. She said, I want you to write down your child's name, your, your child's Hebrew name. And she took these names and she put them in jars and she buried the jars in her yard. There's a, actually a book called Life in a Jar. Fantastic story, even with a Kansas episode in it, if you can believe that. But Irina Sindler convinced them, and she said to the mothers, if you survive, I will do everything in my power to reunite you with your child, but if you don't, I will find a home for your child, and I will find that child, and I will tell him or her, this is your Jewish name, and this is what your mother did for you. Life out of death that is a sign from God. I don't know, you know, what resolutions you made for the new year. If you're like me, it's less sugar, more exercise, those kinds of things. But the gospel calls us to more than just self-improvement. It calls us to work for justice, to bring life where there is death. You know, to to read books to kids at Children's Mercy, to cook meals at Micah Ministry, to serve the poor, 
There's one other feature in this story, another interpretive clue, but it is so small. When Donna, the docent, and I lead these tours at the Nelson, at the Sebastiano Ricci, it's just a huge piece. She always has everybody make a little fist like this so you can view the piece. And you just look at a square inch or two and you scan the whole thing because it's in doing that, the close look, that you go, oh my gosh, I, I never would have seen that. There's one of those in this text. You'd have to really squint to see it. And if you found this, you get a gold star. In the first line, it says this. Now on the third day, on the third day, if you read the Gospel of John from chapter 1 up to this point, there is no way this is the third day. It might be the fourth or the fifth, the sixth, seventh, eighth, something like that, but it is not the third day. But John's calendar is not a mess. It's not that the poor guy's disorganized. He's not interested in chronology. This is his theology. It's almost like he says, wink, wink, you want me to tell you a third day story? Because you know what happens in the gospel on a third day? Jesus is raised from the dead. Life out of death. Anywhere that you see life, you could call that a sign from God. So you could look at your list, you know, of your resolutions. I don't know how many you have on there. I wonder if you have any that are about life out of death. 